My name is Dave Pulaski. I'm a sports broadcaster working as a play-by-play -play announcer, a studio host. Uh, I work in production as well, audio production. Uh, I dabble a little bit of everything uh, with regard to that. I've been in the sports broadcasting industry full-time for about seven years now. Uh, I've been involved with it for about 15 years. Prior to working in sports full-time, I had also worked in news as an anchor and reporter. And I've been overall in the journalism industry for about 20 years now. Well, when I started out in the news industry, it was right out of college, but it was uh, for a radio station in New Jersey, uh, called Jersey 101.5. And I actually started out not even on air. It was, you know, you're editing stories, you're helping to uh, produce other content for the station. You kind of had to earn your stripes, so to speak, uh, before you would get that on-air opportunity. Uh, especially in a larger market like that. So uh, it required a little bit of patience along the way. Um, but when it came to sports, it actually started out where I was uh, running the board, you know, manning the controls during a different broadcast for Ryder University, which was right down the street from our radio station. And eventually, you know, just through talking with their play-by-play -play guys and stuff that they learned that I had an interest in sports and a, and a passion for it and that I wanted to be involved in it. So uh, little by little, they would start to uh, add on-air updates for me. And uh, eventually that became fill-in play-by-play opportunities. And uh, once I got that bug, uh, it, it just, uh, I, I didn't want to let it go. And eventually it reached a point in my career where I'd accomplished what I wanted in news and I wanted to transition into sports. And then a job opportunity seven years ago with uh, Learfield IMG College presented itself. Then they were IMG College. And uh, now uh, I've taken that job opportunity and I'm still involved with that company seven years later. So uh, safe to say that uh, it, it's worked out. I currently work with Florida State University in the, in the ACC. So they're one of the top notch uh, universities, you know, traditionally with football and basketball. Uh, I've also been involved with the Texas Longhorns, uh, with UCLA, uh, Arizona State. Those are some of the bigger name schools that I've been the studio host for. And then I've done play-by-play -play in the ACC. I've done work with uh, with Duke University for baseball, Virginia Tech for baseball. So uh, it, it's it's you know a very lengthy process in terms of of reaching that level. But uh, you have to have, a, like I said and you'll hear this a lot throughout the hour, uh, having patience and, and trust in yourself and your ability. Okay, uh, well, if you're at a game, then chances are you might not even hear us unless you have a, a little radio in, in the stands or anything like that. Uh, so the difference is uh, when you're a studio host, you're filling the content that surrounds the game. So um, for example, during football, uh, for Florida State games, I'll uh, be on air during the pregame portion of the show for several segments. I'll do the entire halftime. So once the game goes to halftime, the play-by-play -play guys at the stadium, or in some cases, they're calling the game off a TV monitor remotely. That's been a, a byproduct of 2020 and the pandemic uh, this year, especially. Uh, they'll uh, pitch it to me in the studio, and then I'll give updates, whether it's stat updates about our game, whether it's talking about other games that are in progress or games that took place earlier today in the conference or in the top 25. 
I'll give updates on that. And then I host the entire post-game show, which is about an hour to an hour and a half, uh, where it's interviews with the coaches and players and uh, talking about what happened in the game, giving a, a recap of how things played out the way they did. So it's more of a bridge between the play-by-play -play content and the rest of the programming. So it, it it's a little bit different. Uh, there, there are similarities, obviously, but um, as, as a play-by-play -play guy, obviously, you're the one who's a part of the action and you're doing that for the entire time. So uh, there's, there's gaps as a studio host, but you're, you're still heavily involved in the program. What you hear on air is just a fraction of what ends up going into the job itself. In fact, earlier this morning, before I had a chance to talk with you, uh, yeah, I was doing my game prep for basketball tonight as a studio host, where I'll be handling halftime and post game and, and things of that nature. So I'll do my research on, on the different games that are going on and I'll have my stat packs out and available to me. I'll print out game notes and um, you know, there, there's a, at least a couple of hours of work involved before the game even starts, before I even go to, to the studio or to the stadium or the arena if I'm doing play-by-play. -play. So uh, there, there's a lot of research involved. There's a lot of a lot of preparation uh, that comes with those broadcasts because you want to sound like you're as informed as, as you possibly can be. Luckily, in, at the college level for Game Notes, they have uh, sports information directors who uh, produce uh, these packets of notes that have stats. They have uh, little factoids like like the series history against a particular opponent or uh, trends of what a team's been doing over the last several games, or they'll, they'll have the, the full list of a schedule involved with, with the team. Uh, when you're working in like minor league baseball, I had to write the game notes myself before doing the broadcast. So uh, it, it was a little bit different uh, in that. Uh, so college, you get a little bit more detail when it comes to uh, the game notes and the preparation, but a lot of it is um, just going through those. And as a studio host, a lot of times I'm talking about other games, not even related to my own. So for example, uh, tonight, uh, North Carolina and Texas are playing in the Maui Invitational Championship. So I did about an hour of research on that game and that particular matchup that I would have uh, for content during the Florida State basketball game. So you, you kind of have to be well-versed in, in all the games that are going on. And it's, it's a little bit different in that sense, but um, it, it makes you more well-rounded in terms of, of knowing who your opponent is because Florida State's going to play Carolina later this year. So it, it'll uh, benefit me to, to know what's going on with that uh, ahead of time. With regard to formal education, uh, obviously, the earlier you get involved and the more repetitions you have at becoming a sportscaster, the, the more beneficial it will be. That said, I feel like it's important to go to a, a good journalism school or to have a school that has a good communications background. So that way you're, you learn from professors who have that experience in the field and who can properly relay that to, to students. I had the benefit of, of going to Ohio University, which is a highly respected journalism school, one of the top 15 in the country. And I learned from professors who were in the field and a better writer, a better speaker by learning from people who have already been involved with it. I would say no, that a formal degree is not required. Uh, it's 
I think it, it certainly helps uh, because a lot of times you'll see job recruiters or hiring managers will look at the school that you go to. And if they see Syracuse or Northwestern or Ohio or uh, Missouri or North Carolina, other schools like that, uh, that have those, uh, those stellar journalism reputations, then obviously that's going to give you a leg up on some of the other competition out there. But that said, uh, you don't have to be at one of those uh, top-notch journalism schools. You just have to uh, display the talent uh, to fit in with uh, with the uh, uh, that particular uh, job that you're applying for. Or I, I, not everybody really wants to be in that top spotlight. Some people like to be in those smaller markets and and to be able to just help the community as much as they can. So. Uh, in those cases, it's it's not really a requirement uh, to be uh, to have that kind of formal education. It, it just requires a it requires the work ethic. How many times, uh, especially in the sports broadcasting industry, I've come across people who went to Syracuse and automatically they get the leg up because there are so many uh, uh, people from the Newhouse uh, School of Journalism at, at Syracuse who are involved in sports broadcasting. You, you can just run down the list, the Mike Tarikos, uh, you know, Sean McDonough's of the world, you know, guys like that who uh, you just see the list of, of who's who on ESPN or NBC, and a lot of them went to Syracuse. So uh, like I said, it, it, that does provide an advantage, but it's not a requirement. I always had a passion for sports. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, I, I just loved to play sports. I, I was involved with as many sports as I possibly could. And I probably drove my parents crazy over time, you know, playing baseball and basketball and football. And I think I played soccer for a year and I did Taekwondo for a couple of years. I mean, I was just involved with almost everything, rec hockey, you name it, I played it. And uh, I was, you know, along with that, you know, you watched a lot of sports on TV as well. And, you know, you got to hear the announcers and you know, when I was a little kid, uh, it was, you know, Vin Scully, of course, who is legendary in California uh, as the Dodgers broadcaster. He also announced the NBC game of the week when I was a little kid for baseball. So my first real experiences with baseball were with him on the TV and you know, just the way that he would paint pictures with his words. It, it was it was inspiring. And uh, as somebody who, you know, loved playing the game. You, you recognize that you're not going to play forever because nobody does. So you still want to be involved in the game somehow. And I always wanted to be involved in announcing that, that, uh, that bug never left me ever since I was a little kid, even when I was working in the news aspect of the journalism industry. So uh, eventually I reached a point in my career where the opportunity presented itself. I was at a point in my life where I could take that chance of transitioning careers uh, in my thirties and, and, Luckily, the opportunities uh, have allowed themselves to happen. Key characteristics. Uh, I know I mentioned the word a, a couple of times already uh, during this interview, but patience is the one that has really, throughout my career, it's, it's presented itself over and over again. And it's something that you need to tell people who are just getting into the industry because a lot of people, when they're first getting involved, you have the visions of grandeur, you want to be, you know, the Joe Buck or the 
Al Michaels or, you know, the Dick Vitale, the industry, you, you want to get to the top as quickly as possible. But the reality is, is that you don't always have those opportunities unless you have some really supreme talent and also some uh, very knowledgeable connections. So those come in time, but in order to allow yourself to remain confident in your ability in the industry, you just have to stay patient and, and, and keep working hard towards those opportunities because they, they don't come at you overnight. That's, that's the first characteristic that uh, has really presented itself over and over again. Uh, work ethic, that's certainly another one. You know, you, you, have to, you have to really dive into the business itself in order to be successful. You can't cut corners. You can't go through, oh, I'll do a little bit of research on this and I'll just wing the rest of it. it that, that just doesn't happen. You have to be as prepared as possible. You have to over-prepare. When I'm doing play-by-play, -play, for example, I would say about anywhere between 30 and 40% of the stuff that I research never even makes it on air. That's an extra hour, extra two hours worth of, of stuff that I'll do in game prep that never even makes it through the microphone. But I have it in my back pocket in case I ever need it. Let, you know, let's say there's a delay in the game for some reason and you need to fall back on something else because that does happen, happens in football, happens in baseball. Uh, not so much in California, you don't have as many rain delays, but uh, you, know, you, you have uh, certain things that require you to fill time. And sometimes the games that you're doing aren't as competitive as you hoped they would be. Sometimes they're, they're blowouts and you need something to keep either the viewer or the listener engaged. So, you know, maybe you put the play by play on the back seat. You still talk about the game. You still describe the action, but you'll kind of shift it from, from the action itself to topics that are involved in the sports world, or you'll focus on some of the individual players stories a little bit more. Uh, there it, it's, it's a, it's a tapestry in, involved with doing uh, that kind of broadcasting where, you know, not everybody's going to care about the game when it's, when it's 70 to 40, you know, it's, it, it's something that it, it, the biggest uh, thing is to just keep the listeners involved and engaged in the broadcast, regardless of what the score is and keep them entertained. Types of equipment, uh, a headset obviously is one of the first things where, You'll, you'll have the, you know, the, the headphones that come over and then you'll have an extended microphone that, uh, that allows you to, uh, to call the action. Some people go with a freestanding microphone in front of them. Uh, I, I know a couple of my colleagues in the baseball industry like to do that. I move around too much. Uh, I'll, you know, whether I'm looking up something on a sheet of paper or looking up something on a laptop, I'll, I'll kind of move back and forth a little bit too much. So I like having the headset right there, so the the microphone is uh, you know, within within close proximity to me. Um, that so that's obviously one of the main things. Uh, a good mixer board is another uh, thing where you have different channels uh, that you'll plug into. You'll plug in a headset. You'll plug in a microphone that is used uh, primarily to uh, capture the sound of the fans when you have fans in attendance all kind of comes together. It's not all through one single channel. Like you're, you know, like when you're a little kid and, and you like broadcasting, so you're announcing the game into a tape recorder, you know, when 
it, it's a, it's a little bit more involved than that, obviously. So, um, you know, it, it makes it sound more professional, a little bit more, uh, more complete in, in terms of the audio quality. Um, so I mean, that's obviously a big part of it. Uh, I find that having a laptop or an iPad uh, is, is also vitally important in terms of uh, keeping track of stats that pop up during uh, the course of the game broadcast. Or if you need to do some in-game research, like during a commercial break and you need to look something up and be like, hey, uh, you know, this, this almost seems historic. Like, you know, I wonder if anybody's ever scored 20 points in a row before, like that kind of thing. You know, you'll, you'll be able to look that up on Google and, and have that uh, at your fingertips as well. So uh, there are a few different things that are involved with, uh, you know, with the equipment involved for a broadcast. Like I'll have, I'll usually plug a recorder into whatever unit we're using and then I'll have the recorder. So that way it's basically a backup of the broadcast. That was something I actually learned from uh, Chris Roberts with UCLA mm. uh, before he retired was he, he always said to me, no matter what, make sure you have something to record yourself because you can't guarantee on other people to have it for you. <laughs> I took that to heart six years ago and I still use it to this day. <laughs> Especially with technology advents over the last several years, I think it's easier now to do uh, a broadcast from the comforts of your own home as we're demonstrating here. It's, it's easier to do that now than ever before. That's for sure. Um, to have you know, the, the better audio quality, you might want to make an investment, but it's still affordable. A mixer board, for example, can cost up to $300, I would say, uh, at least the ones that I've purchased in the past. Uh, the headset, it, it really depends on, on the quality. I, I like to uh, use what, what's called a Sennheiser a headset, and those can run anywhere between $200 and $300. But I, I'm, I'm familiar with the product. I, I'm, a lot of my predecessors in the broadcast industry swore by it, so I got involved with it too and and i've been satisfied with the audio quality results as well so uh those those are those are the two biggest ticket items and then cables can cost 10 to 20 dollars and and it never hurts to have extra cables a, a, a mini voice recorder that i'll use for pre-game interviews or to record uh the play-by-play -play that i plug into the board during the broadcast that's about 50 bucks so it, it can add up but at the same time it's still readily affordable i would say when you're working in the sports casting industry, it can feel solitary because it's just you and the microphone at times. Uh, you, you know, when you're, if you're in a studio, there's nobody around you. It's, it's just you and a bunch of computers and things that, that connect to the stadium and everything like that. So it feels solitary, but you work with a whole team of other people involved. Uh, at, at Learfield IMG College, for example, as, as a studio host, you're separate, but you're working with network managers, you're working with the play-by-play -play people, you're working with the color analyst, you're working with the engineer, other uh, game day staff, you know, sports information directors and everything like that. So it really is a whole team involved. And th that's another thing that that's, I, I think, big for those of you who are getting into the industry or in, interested in getting involved is that you have to be a team player. Uh, you you can't look out for yourself all the time and and have a selfish attitude because not only it, does that kind of defeat what you're trying to accomplish with the broadcast, it's also going to hurt you down the road. 
because a lot of those connections, a lot of those network uh, skills that you develop with some of the people that you work with in the current time are going to help you going forward in terms of, of uh, what jobs you might be interested in. Because one thing that I've learned about the radio industry and is the same in the television industry as well from, from 20 years involved in, in journalism is that it's a very small circle where once you start to work with somebody, chances are you're gonna work with them again in some way, shape or form down the road. So a lot of those connections you make, you, you wanna treat them the right way because they're gonna remember that if they come across you at a point in time in the future. With regard to travel, uh, a, a lot of times traveling is involved, not so much this year, uh, thanks to the pandemic. Uh, I've, I don't think I've left the state of North Carolina since February, which is extremely rare for me. Uh, in fact, when the pandemic hit, um, I was scheduled to travel to Atlanta to do Duke baseball against Georgia Tech. Uh, that very next weekend after after the world seemingly stopped. So typically there is a lot of travel involved. A lot of times there, it's just day trips, depending on what, what the schedule is, where you can go out, do your thing and, and be back home uh, you know, before the night's out. Uh, other times you'll, you'll have to do overnight travel. Uh, I've done that with uh, Virginia Tech baseball uh, going up to New England when, when they played Boston College and you, know, you stay a couple of nights in a hotel working in minor league baseball, you, you know, you're, you're at home for a week and then you're on the road for another week. And, you know, you're, you're on a bus with, uh, with the rest of the team, uh, traveling from, from place to place. And, and you're in San Jose for three days. And then, you know, you get on the bus and you go to Stockton for three days and then you come back home. You're, you're back in your home ballpark for a week before you hit the road uh, for another couple of days. So yeah, there, there is a, a travel aspect involved with it. Um, and that also involves a little bit of, of budgeting your time as well in terms of, of doing your preparation while you're on the road as well and making sure that you have uh, the proper materials and, and making sure that you're up to speed uh, even when doing road games, especially in the minor leagues because they'll do the, the bus trips. And if you don't want to drive yourself, then uh, you'll, you'll, you'll travel on the bus uh, when I was with Virginia Tech baseball, we flew to Boston uh, from Charlotte, and the entire team uh, did a commercial flight uh, up to you know up to Boston Logan uh, for uh, that series. So a lot of times, yeah, you do travel with the team. Every once in a while, you can you can travel on your own. I know when I was with the Quakes uh, in Rancho Cucamonga, I uh, a lot of times because of the proximity between some of the places like Inland Empire or Lake Elsinore. Uh, my broadcast partner, Mike Linscog, and I would just drive ourselves. And that kind of gave us the freedom to to arrive when we wanted to. And you're, you're time, kind of on a time constraint when you're leaving the ballpark after a game because, you know, the bus only waits a certain amount of time. So <laughs> so you don't want to be left behind it in that instance. So you, you have to have a quick uh, post game in that sense. And then you have to pack up the equipment and everything like that. So a lot of times we would travel ourselves and, and that eliminated that rushed aspect of it. So you would, you'd have the ability to do it, but more often than not, you'll, you'll travel with the team uh, going from destination to destination. 
advantages and disadvantages. I guess let's start with the advantages. If if you're a sports fan, there's really nothing better. I mean, you get paid to be around something that you would be around otherwise and that you would typically pay for. Uh, that's, I mean, it, it doesn't get much better than that. You have access to teams and players and and venues that you wouldn't always have the ability to uh to be involved with uh, i think that's another uh great thing about it actually going back to the traveling question that's uh, another one of the benefits you know prior to working in the california league five years ago i'd never been to san francisco so on one of our trips when we, when we went to san jose i drove myself and didn't you know, I didn't have to worry about the bus or anything like that. And did my game notes ahead of time, did all my prep for the broadcast. And before the game that night, I drove from San Jose to San Francisco during the day and just spent some time around the city and, you know, got back, you know, well in time for pregame and everything like that. But it was, it was an opportunity that I wouldn't have had uh, readily available to me otherwise. So, you, know, you you get to travel and you get to experience so many different people and, and places and I, I think that's that's one of the coolest aspects uh, of the job is is that you're you're exposed to things that you wouldn't always have uh, at your fingertips if, if you're working a typical office nine to five job. My most joyous things is just to you know walk around campuses of, of different places you know working in the college level. And, and just experiencing, uh, you know, that that campus life before going to do a game on that particular night, and I think that's that's really cool. Now, one of the disadvantages uh, when you're first getting into the industry, in in any uh, field of journalism, whether it's radio, whether it's news, whether it's sports, whether it's television, it doesn't pay all that much at the outset, and that's where the patience comes in again because. You, know, you you might have to work a second job in order to make ends meet while you're you know earning your time and, and earning your keep in the journal in the journalism industry you might have to work at a grocery store or a Walmart or uh, you know a restaurant or, or things like that a lot of my colleagues uh, have had to do that over the years as well so it's it's not just one person who does it most people do it unless they come from from a a situation of means where they don't have to worry about money as much, but you know, it's the real world and it's, uh, you know, it's at a time when unemployment's pretty high too. So, and you're having cutbacks across industries all over the place too. So a lot of times you have to take on a couple of jobs to make ends meet. So it stretches you a little bit thin on time. So that's, I would say that's one of the, one of the disadvantages at least early on in your career, but you can reach a certain point where you don't have to worry about that anymore. So it's it's just a matter of of kind of riding that wave, so to speak, and and being able to to overcome that and preparing yourself for the future. For me, when you get paid for sportscasting, it, it can vary. Sometimes uh, it can be a full time job where you get a salary. Sometimes it's a part time job where you're a seasonal employee. Other times it's per game, you know, where you get paid uh, by the game. As, as a studio host at Learfield IMG College, 
I get paid per game. So if, if a game gets postponed or canceled, I don't see that paycheck for that particular uh, week or that particular time period. So a, a lot of times, in fact, I'll get involved with extra broadcasts and, and I'll do fill-in broadcasts to make extra money uh, with that. And not only that, but you also get a chance to expand your network as well. You know, if, if I'm working with Florida State one week and then I'm working with Arkansas the next week and then I'm working with Washington the next week, then that's an extra array of, of listeners who get to hear me. And, and not only that, but you also have the higher ups who get to hear you as well. And that can open up the door for opportunities in the future. And that can open yourself to more paydays from a, a full-time salary aspect. Uh, it's, you know, obviously that is in line with what you see in other industries as well. And in other professions employ, especially in minor league baseball, because you have a lot of downtime from say October until March. And a lot of teams don't have as much content that needs to be created or uh, or focused on uh, during that time. And, and a lot of those minor league businesses are trying to save money as much as possible as well. So you'll work from say March through September. And then at the other points in the year, then that's where you try and you, you either have the time off or you try and, and find a job in, in another industry. So uh, you're seeing a lot of move toward a seasonal. I have a lot of seasonal jobs. So I'll go from football season into basketball season into baseball season. And then football typically goes from say August until November or December. Basketball will go from November until around March. And then baseball, working in college baseball, it starts a little bit earlier. So college baseball starts in February and it'll go until June. If you're working in minor league baseball, it'll go from say March until September. It's very cyclical where you can have a full-time profession in the industry, even by coupling together a few part-time jobs. And by doing so, then you'll be able to add it up into a full-time salary, uh, so to speak, and, and to have uh, those livable wages. But for me, as, as, a, as a college broadcaster, I'll go from, say, August until June, and then it's kind of like being a teacher where I'll have July and August off. Which, which is nice because I'll have a chance to kind of recharge the batteries and, and update uh, my professional website or, or go through audio or do things like that and just kind of catch up on everything, spend some extra time with the family. It's, it's, you know, it's nice in that aspect where it's kind of like having a, it's kind of like a teacher's job where you, you have the, that month or two off before you have to hit the grind once again. Hmm, sports casting stigmas. Um, it, it's funny because you hear almost every sportscaster talk about it is that no matter what game you're doing, who you're calling the game for, especially if you're calling it from a neutral setting, you'll have fans who always say that you are rooting against their team. And no matter what you do, no matter what you say, they think that you have it in for their, their team and that you're as biased as possible against them because the game is going a certain way and I, I it's nothing further from the truth, especially if you're calling it on a network like ESPN or whatever, there might be a little bit more attention given to one team over the other because of storylines. That's just the way games play out. It's not always a 50, 50 split in terms of, of, of who gets the attention. It's um, 
you know, when you have a, a smaller, a smaller college going up against a powerhouse like a Kentucky or a Duke, the general viewing or listening audience that doesn't have a vested interest in the game is going to drift more toward the storylines of Kentucky or Duke. So they're going to be uh, listening more for those kind of things. But that doesn't mean that just because we're trying to placate all the listeners that we're against your team. That's like I said, that's probably the biggest stigma. Um, I always go in with the mindset of I try and annoy fans on both sides of the aisle. So that way, no matter what ends up happening, then I know I'm calling a fair game. (laughs) So, and I kind of had that approach when I was working in news as well, because covering political stories, it was, uh, you know, it, it was always, there'd be Republicans or Democrats who were upset with you. So you, you just try and upset both of them. So that way, you know, you did it fair and you did it the right way. <laughs> in terms of like limiting, I, I really don't think it does because a lot of the people who are involved in the broadcast, especially those who are with the network have the trained ear or the trained eye and they know what to expect and what they want to hear from a broadcast or a telecast for that matter. So the people who are are in charge of those things are the ones who ultimately have the the biggest say and the biggest opinion. And if they want you to tweak something, they'll tell you afterward, they'll say, hey, maybe we should give a little bit more attention to to these guys going forward, or maybe we we should downplay this a little bit, or maybe we should do this or that. It's just small tweaks, but those are the opinions that that truly resonate with me. Obviously, we, we love the passion of fans and the most diehards who, who swear that, you know, it's, it's you against them. Uh, but, you know, that being said, I know in my heart when I'm calling a fair game, and that's what I set out to do every time, regardless of, of what the opinion might be otherwise. You know, one of my favorite things especially doing play-by-play is I love to arrive at the stadium or arena like really early. So like typically, like if I'm, if I'm doing play-by-play for a football game, I'll show up at the stadium anywhere between three and four hours before kickoff for a basketball game. It's anywhere between two and three hours baseball. I'm usually there before batting practice starts, which is about two or two and a half hours before. And one of my favorite things to do before you're doing that final prep, because I'm always, I'm always jotting down notes or something like that right up to the final minute before I go on the air. But I just love to have those moments where I'm in a completely empty stadium or arena. There's nobody around. There's nobody else really in the press box at that point. There's nobody in the stands. There's nobody on the field or on the court. And it's just me and the place. And like, I can just zone out and kind of go into this little like Zen moment where I can just be kind of at peace with everything before all the frantic preparation, you know, the frantic last minute preparation gets involved. And before all the action uh, starts, before they start to let the fans in, before, you know, the press box starts to buzz, it's, it's just this moment of calm and it's, you know, that calm before the storm, so to speak. And 
throughout my career, that's that's been one of my favorite things to do. And it's, you know, it, it's been frustrating in a sense during the pandemic because I haven't had that opportunity to do so over the last uh, several months. A lot of my focus has been on studio hosting and uh, the play-by-play -play is uh, in the pipeline uh, to come soon. But, you know, I, I've missed that a lot over the last seven or eight or nine months where it's just you in an empty stadium. And it, it kind of gets my mind focused as to on, on what I have to do for that particular day and that particular night. And, and that's, that's really one of my, my favorite benefits where you, you get in before everybody else. or you have the ability to, to do that. And it, it's just, it's really cool to just kind of soak it in. And especially if you're in a historic building like Cameron indoor stadium at Duke, for example, I mean, world famous, known as one of the, the go-to places in college basketball. And it's, it's awesome when it's just you in that 9,000 seat arena. And you can, you can almost, you can almost hear the history. If you kind of think about it in your head about some of the, the big moments and big games that have gone on there and you look at the banners and, and the history and everything, it's, it's just really cool. And, you know, it, it kind of helps you get locked in on what you have to do. And it makes you appreciate the job that much more. Uh, you definitely come into contact with the players. Uh, for me, I try to keep it as, uh, as professional as possible because I don't want, I don't want biases to slip in. Uh, sure. You, you get to know some people better than, than others and, and friendships do develop uh, during uh, the course of that time. I've found that throughout the course of my career, I've been, I've had those, those bigger connections and friendships with my fellow sportscasters because it becomes a, a very, it is an exclusive fraternity. And a, a lot of the people that you're working with, if they've been in the industry for a long time, they have some terrific stories and you can just sit in the same room with them and just soak it in. And, you know, one of the coolest things about working with Florida state is working with Gene Deckerhoff, who is an absolute legend in the sports casting industry. He's worked for Florida state for, I believe 41 years doing football and basketball. He also is the voice of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL. So he, he's called Tom Brady's games this year. And, and he's called a suit, you know, he's called a super bowl title for the Bucs and he's called national championships for Florida state. And you can just sit down and listen to him tell stories for a couple hours and just be endlessly entertained and not even get a word in edgewise. You can just let him go. And with that distinct voice of his, uh, you know, you just find yourself smiling throughout the whole time. And it's like, yeah, I get to interact with these, you know, with these people. And, you know, one of my, one of my greatest influences in broadcasting uh, was when I worked with the university of Texas of, uh, I spent three years with the Longhorns doing uh, the studio hosting for football and basketball. Their play-by-play -play guy is uh, a person named Craig Way. Craig is one of the best people in the sports casting industry, one of the most personable. If you need help with something, he's willing to jump in and, and answer your questions. Um, the, the first time we met actually was when I was at the Final Four in Houston in 2016. I'd done a little bit of fill and work for Texas, nothing full-time or anything like that. And after the final four was done, I drove up to Austin, 
you know, went to the campus and went to a baseball game there. And I, I sent Craig an, uh, an email message and just, you know, I was like, just letting you know, I'm, I'm in Austin. I, you know, I know you're calling the baseball game. If you have a, a moment to step out of the booth and say hello, you know, I'd be happy. You know, I'd be thrilled by that. And not only did he do that, we hung out for like an hour after the game was done, just talking about the industry and, and answering my questions. And like I said, he barely knew me at that time. And, you know, three years later, I would say he is the biggest influence on my entire play-by-play career in terms of how I structure, especially football. A lot of, a lot of how I structure my football play-by-play calls is based off of how Texas does it and, and how Craig does it because we have, we have similar broadcasting styles and I'll kind of dive in into a different tangent and a point to make to some of the younger journalists, you know, and, and would be broadcasters out there in just a little bit, but having a, a person like that to, to look up to and to have as a mentor uh, has been critical in, in my development as a play-by-play broadcaster in my career. And, and in a sense, it's, it's why I'm trying to, to pay it forward as well to, to some of these broadcasters uh, who are trying to get into the industry as well, because that's, that's what the name of the game is all about is to try and help others in the industry because uh, there have been people before me who have helped me out. And now I'm trying to do that same thing for the future generations. I'm honestly not sure if I have a least favorite thing about being a sportscaster because, you know, when I, when I worked in news, I could, I could have a couple of least favorite things. Uh, in in the journalism industry, so I, I guess we'll dive into that. We'll go over on on the other aspects where when you're working in the industry, but you're not in the exact job that you love, sometimes the things can be a little bit complicated. Where you know, if I was working in news and there was a breaking news story that would carry me until two or three in the morning. And you have to frantically try and gather information. It, you know, it, it can be frustrating, especially when you know you expect to get out of work at a certain time and you have to cancel plans and everything like that. That's just what happens in in journalism. As much as you like to have a set schedule, there's not always a set schedule, so that that can be a frustrating aspect of it. I'll say this though: working in sports, if I have a game that goes into overtime, I'm like, yeah, let's go. This is great. Um, it's it's one of the <laughs> You know, it's one of the cool things about that. And it's, it's, it's when you know that you're in, in the job that's meant for you, um, that you can be, uh, you know, excited by, by things going off the script, so to speak. You don't even mind the preparation that's involved because I'm, I'm sure that, that that kind of grind can be frustrating for people as well. One thing that I would like to see more of in the journalism industry is a little bit more transparency and a little bit more interaction, especially when it comes to uh, jobs and hiring, where a lot of times, and I'm sure a lot of the aspiring broadcasters will experience this in the coming days and weeks and, and months. When they're trying to get into the industry and they send an email out to a team or an organization trying to get their foot in the door, a lot of times that email is met with silence and you don't know what you'd like, you know, what to improve upon, why you're not being considered for this job, why you're not being selected for this job. If you are making it, 
along in the process. There's not as much transparency as I would like to see in the industry. I, I would like to see a little bit more interaction between those who are, are trying to get hired and those who are in charge of the hiring. And obviously, listen, time is of utmost importance for, for all of us. But even when I get rejection emails or phone calls, I'm, I'm appreciative of that because I, I know that I at least what, you know, I wasn't just a number that I was at least considered in some way, shape or form. And that's something that broadcasters will have to experience a lot. There's a lot of rejection involved in the industry. You don't get hired for the first thing you apply for, or you don't get hired for everything you apply for. There are times where you're, you can, you know, apply for 20 different jobs and you might not even hear from 17 or 18 of them. And you might get rejection emails from the other two and you might get a phone call from one and you might not land any of the 20. But that's where the patience comes in as well uh, to, to be able to overcome that rejection and, and develop a thick skin. And, and that just comes with time. But I, I still would like to see more transparency in the, in the industry. But that said, I wish as opposed to learning it as I went along, I had known more about networking when I first started to get into the industry, because I, I think that might have sped up the process a little bit more. I'm, I might have uh, reached the sports broadcasting industry a little bit earlier. I mean, that said, I'm, I'm a strong believer in fate and that, you know, you're, you're supposed to be where you're supposed to be. So I feel like my time in news made me a better writer. It made me a better broadcaster. It made me more patient. Having been involved in some of the alternatives, kind of hearkening back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier of, you know, games going to overtime versus breaking news as a broadcaster, it made me more appreciative of being in the sports industry now. I was always a shy person growing up too. I, I And at the very least, introduce yourself. I didn't really come out of my shell until college and when it was like, hey, I'm working in the journalism industry. I'm supposed to talk to people. Maybe I should do that a bit more. But I, you know, I was very shy in high school. Every once in a while, I'll still have that, that oh, I just don't want to really bother somebody kind of thought process. But it, it never hurts to reach out to people. It never hurts to connect. It, it never hurts to maybe network connections come about from that. Maybe they don't. But at the very least, you're, you're at least putting yourself out there. And that, that's something I wish I did a little bit more of early on. And, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to dispense that onto people uh, who are getting into the industry now. Well, there's a lot of time commitment. And I'll, I'll say this, the, the time commitment is as much as you want to make it. I, I guess that can go across all platforms of, of journalism where the more time you dedicate to your craft, the better you're going to be, the the more quickly you're going to develop as a broadcaster. You know, the the more, as a play-by-play -play guy especially, the more repetitions you get, the better you're going to be. And you, you get to experience more things. You get to see more game situations that present themselves uh, as opposed to doing one game a week. If you're doing three games a week, you're going to get better faster. That's It's just a fact. Um, but there is a work-life balance that you try to achieve. And I'll, I'll say this, it's tough early on in your career because you want to develop yourself into being as good a broadcaster as you can as early on as you can. And a lot of games fall on weekends 
and a lot of games happen at night. And most people who have typical nine to five jobs work Monday through Friday. And the times that they're available are the times that you're working. So it, it can be frustrating when you're trying to make plans with friends, when you're trying to make you know, dates, when you're trying to uh, come up with uh, different things to do. It, it, can be, uh, it can be a challenge at times and, and a bit of a mental drain. But when you get to a certain point in your career, then you can start to pick and choose and be like, you know what? I've already done this game and this game this week. If I'm asked to fill in on, on another broadcast, I, I can just say no. Like there's, there is that, that freedom. And if you've reached that, that certain level that you're, uh, where you can do a little bit more uh, in, in terms of flexibility for your schedule and, and that sort of thing. But I mean, there, there is a heavy time commitment involved, at least in the early going. And even even after you're established, there's still travel that we've we've talked about. There's still um, being at the stadium, you know, in, in preparation for a game. There's still research and, and game prep, uh, uh, working, you know, late night, you know, into the late night night hours sometimes, going and getting yourself ready for a particular thing. So uh, there is a lot of time commitment, but you can find a way to to balance work and life aspects, especially if you're if your friends and your circle understands what the job entails and can uh, make themselves available during the times when you're available. How people can figure out if, if sports casting is a good fit. I would say practice, you know, and get as involved as you can and really throw yourself into the grind because if, if you dabble at it here and there, you're not going to get the full experience of, of what it takes and what's involved in being a sportscaster. You see it and you hear it all the time. How many times have you been, you know, at a stadium or at an arena somewhere, you'll hear somebody start describing the action and start doing play-by-play from their seats. No preparation, just like, oh, that's a, that's a fastball or, or that's, you know, that's this or that shot's good or like that. Everybody thinks they can do it, but... There is so much involved to be a, a, an accomplished sportscaster, especially as a play-by-play person. Uh, there, there's so much more involved rather than just talking. Or, or you get paid to talk for two hours? I can do that. Like any, you know, everybody thinks that they can just step in and do it, you know, with no preparation or anything like that. But it's the stuff that you don't see that goes on behind the scenes that really makes or breaks you as a sportscaster. And when you're getting in first involved in it, I, I think that is kind of what tells you whether or not you belong in the industry. Because the on-air part is the easy part. It, the, the hard part is doing all the other stuff that surrounds it, whether it's media relations or whether it's doing, you know, doing your research and your game prep or or the travel, sometimes, you know, not everybody enjoys the travel. Some people would just like to be closer to home. So all those things mesh together is what makes a sportscaster. It's it's not just what you hear for two or three hours on the radio or on the television. And I, I think that's what separates those who really want to be in the industry from those who have an interest in the industry. There are a lot of jobs in sports media where you don't have to be on the mic or you don't have to be in front of the camera in order to be involved. Um, we, we actually kind of talked about it where uh, sports information directors at colleges 
I call them the unsung heroes of athletic programs because they provide the information. They're the ones who set up media availabilities with coaches and players. They're the ones who make my job a lot easier, frankly, uh, in the college industry, but they don't get all that much attention for, you know, putting out those game notes or for, for setting up uh, the, those media uh, trials and everything like that. So that's, that's something where if, if you love being involved in sports media and you, you love numbers and you love facts and you love just being part of the, the day-to-day operation of a program, that's, that's something that is great to get involved in. Uh, media and public relations kind of falls under that same scope uh, for professional uh, and minor league franchises where you'll do a lot of work with, with businesses and companies and um, coaches and players to uh, interact them with, with the general public and, and have them involved in that sense. Uh, for television camera operators, you know, you're, you're, you're the eyes of the broadcast. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing what, what they're seeing and what they're presenting to you. So, I mean, they're obviously an integral part of the broadcast, even though you never actually hear or, or see them. So there's there so many different uh, aspects uh, of being involved in, in sports media uh, without necessarily uh, having the microphone in front. General advice. Uh, well, I mean, we, we've already touched on it a little bit, but networking obviously is, is a huge component of that. Um, getting, getting out there, uh, making yourself available to people uh, for feedback, uh, putting your own content out there for constructive criticism so that you can be a better broadcaster as a result. Um, I, w- I would say, and we were kind of diving into this a little bit earlier, but I, I held off and this is the perfect time to come out with it. When I was talking about uh, Craig Way and myself having similar styles of broadcasting, it's important as a broadcaster to have your own style. Even though you can have a similar style, you don't want to copy somebody verbatim or you don't want to have the same voice inflections or you don't want to have the same exact approach. You want to still have your own voice and your own personality that comes out in the broadcast. Just because Craig and I have a similar structure in terms of the way we set up plays, our play-by-play calls are still completely different. And that's because Craig has his voice, I have my voice, and we talked about Vin Scully earlier too, where you know, you, you try and do the Vin Scully impressions or, or, you know, college football, Keith Jackson with the low Nellies and everything like that. But it's important to not turn yourself into a caricature by trying to be one of those people. Because first of all, you're not going to be those people. Those, you know, they're, they're legends. They've developed their own style that if you're trying to be fake, I guess, in a certain sense, by trying to be like them, the listener, the viewer, they'll be able to see or hear right through that. So it's important to develop your own voice uh, in, in coming up with your broadcasting style. Uh, you might not have the deepest voice in the world. I don't. Uh, you might not have a way with words like like certain uh, broadcasters like Mike Emmerich in hockey or or you know Vin Scully. But it's important to to have your own voice and to be able to present the game in your own style because. People are going to be entertained if, if you put forth a good product. Work, working with the Dodgers five years ago and being in the same organization as Vin Scully, who is one of my broadcasting heroes, 
just being in the same organization and being on the same airwaves as as him when I was working with UCLA, being on you know KLAC, doing UCLA football and basketball when the Dodgers were on KLAC as well. It, it was just like, all right, this is just really, you know, really cool. Like there, there's a possibility he might be listening. So like the, you know, it's it's cool to draw off of of those inspirations, but you still have to have your own voice. That's that's really the most important thing. A lot of it is just trial by fire for me, where I was learning. I was just learning as I went. So I, I feel like it's such an advantage to have that knowledge going into it. So you kind of know what to expect, or you know how to make those those adjustments a little bit a little bit earlier in your career instead of, of learning as you go. I, I just think that's, I think that's beneficial.